everyone. Welcome to episode 197 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we wanted to start today with a thank you to our listener, Mimi. She reached out to us via email and asked if I would be interested in a copy of Safira and the Slave Girl by Willa Cather. It was Cather's last published novel. Mimi was cleaning out an aunt's home and found the first edition that she had that is, I think, in pretty good shape. I am so honored that she reached out and asked if I would be interested in this. I didn't have a first edition in my collection, so I'm super happy. Mimi, I appreciate that so much, and I will give it a reread within the next year, probably. That's so nice. And we also want to thank Carrie, who increased her patronage via our Patreon community. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you. So we wanted to kick off this episode talking a little bit about how we've done with our 2023 reading intentions that we talked about earlier this year. And then we're going to end the episode with some fun announcements, including our read-along theme for 2024. (laughs) (laughs) But first off, Emily, our first intention had been to read 52 books, which is a standard thing we both do on Goodreads, that Goodreads challenge, because that comes out to one book a week, right? Right. Yeah. And I like that the first of the year, if you're a Goodreads subscriber, they make it really easy for you to go in and set your challenge for the year. And then it's super easy to keep track of your reading, which I really appreciate. (laughs) Theoretically, it's super easy if you actually do it. I have to stop doing it on my phone because it was marking books as read that I thought I was marking as want to read. Oh, no. So I just went and I cleaned up some of that. And then I do sometimes forget. But I have to say, doing the podcast and my notes for the episode, that is usually a good (laughs) reminder of, oh, I need to add that to Goodreads. Right. I'm pretty oh. religious about it. As soon as I start a book, I go into Goodreads and do it because for, for the podcast, it's a good way for me mm-hmm. to track what I'm reading. And right now, as it stands, we're recording on December 14th. I'm at 84 books. How about you? Oh my gosh, I didn't write down my number. But let me see if I could look it up here quickly. I'm currently at 62 books right for on. 2023. So I You know, I don't stress out about it because I figured I will make the 52 and anything on top is just a cherry. Yeah, and I know some people have piped in that setting a goal for a number of books read takes away the fun for them because they start to get too concerned about where they're at in the challenge. I don't really pay attention to the number I just did when we decided we were going to reflect on our intentions. Mm -hmm, Right. I mean, I think I did years and years ago when I decided I wanted to read more intentionally and to keep myself challenged and everything. So I don't know. I don't really worry about the number. I have thought sometimes, maybe I should set it to like 100 and really challenge myself. But then I thought, you know, I could get into that resentment mode that happens so easily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And not enjoying what you're reading. Yeah. Yeah. Stressing myself out. All right. Your next goal. My next goal was to read more cookbooks. And I wanted to read one a month and cook recipes from them. So I'm not going to go through all of the cookbooks that I read. I did make a list for myself, and I've read 12. Nice. Which was really exciting to me since we're in the 12th month of the year. I did not always cook from them specific recipes. I did from a lot of them, but some of them just gave me ideas, which is the other point. 
And if anyone's interested in that list of 12 books, feel free to email bookcougars at gmail.com. I'd be glad to share it. Well, well, can you put them in the show notes? Oh, I can. That might be a a place too. Yeah, yeah. I will. I'll put them in the show notes. Well, my next challenge, I had signed up for Adam's TBR pile challenge, which he has done every year where you choose 12 books that you've owned from prior years that you just haven't gotten to yet that you want to read. And you can have two alternates just in case you need to bail on on two of the books that are just not sticking with you for whatever reason. And I've read three, which is kind of better than my past performances. There have been some years when I've read one. So the ones that I did read, and I enjoy them all very much, People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks, The Warden by Anthony Trollope. That was my first Trollope. And then A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. So... I'm not going to say I'm squeezing in another one because I probably won't, but all of the books that are on that list are still calling to me, so they'll happen. They'll get read soon. Is that a list that you just keep as a working list and keep adding to, or is it pretty stagnant and there's just this list that you put together a while ago that you keep referring back to? It's the list for the year, so it's just the 12 books. Okay, so next year you can make a new list. Yes, you can make a new list if you want to participate. I mean, I have mine on my blog, and I have not updated that post. In the past, I would write reviews of each book I read. I, I haven't done anything like that this year. So next for me was I wanted to focus on a particular author and read all of the books she's written. And the author I chose was Maggie O'Farrell. The reason I chose Maggie O'Farrell is because when we got our listener top 10s from 2022, she was one of the most popular authors that kept appearing. And so it made me look at her entire list of work because I really have enjoyed the novels I've read by her. She has 12 total And so far, I've read five out of 12. So I'm making progress. It's great. One of my other goals was to continue with the Willa Cather short story project, which is to read one of her short stories a month. This is something I started in 2019. And I'll be finishing it in 2024. I do posts on my blog, I do a reminder post each month, and then a response post. So I followed through on that. The story for December, which will be the last story for 2023, is The Joy of Nellie Dean. And I, of course, look forward to reading that. On December 7th, it was Willa Cather's 150th birthday. And I worked that evening at the library. And I thought, you know, it was kind of slow. It's towards the end of the semester. And students are mainly studying hard and writing papers. So I went down into the stacks to browse the Willa Cather section, which is not something I had done yet. I was so surprised and delighted to find a copy of A Reader's Guide to the Short Stories of Willa Cather. And this is a book that came out in 1994 by Cheryl L. Meyering. And I don't know if I knew about this book at one point and just couldn't get a copy. Totally must have forgotten about it if I did know about it. So I took that back up to the reference desk with me and was flipping through it. And I realized that there were two stories in that book that I did not have on the reading challenge shocked. The two stories are Uncle Valentine and Double Birthday. And it was Double Birthday that caught my attention because that's like, I've never even heard of that short story. And then when I got home, I looked at my bookshelves and I have the collection, Uncle Valentine and Other Stories, Willa Cather's Uncollected Short Fiction, 1915 to 1929. And the two stories are in there. So I don't know what happened. So now um, we have two more stories to read next year. 
I'll put the link in the show notes to Chris's blog where she's keeping track of the short story projects. Yeah, and anyone's welcome to join if you'd like to read some Willa Cather short fiction. One of my other reading intentions for 2023 was to read more nonfiction. When I had gone over my reading for 2022, I was really surprised that I hadn't read much nonfiction and I really enjoy it. So I looked at my Goodreads challenge and counted up all the nonfiction, which for me includes a lot of memoir and cookbooks. I have read 23. Nice. Yeah. So it was 28% of my reading, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I realized when I said more nonfiction, I didn't set anything specific. I just wanted to be aware that I hadn't read much the year before. That's awesome. Yeah. And that awareness can do a lot to keep it in your mind. Right. Exactly. So do you have different shelves in Goodreads? I'm not. The only one that I ever really use is audiobooks. And I have to admit that I'm not very consistent on that. I feel like if I get into Goodreads and say that I'm currently reading something and that that I read it, I feel pretty happy about my experience there. (laughs) But that's a good idea. Maybe that will be one of my goals for next year is to create shelves on Goodreads. Yeah, I want to get better, more consistent at using it as well. And We'll see how that goes. So we have a thread on Goodreads that we had started back in January, I think it was, our 2023 Reading Intentions thread, and people piped in on what their intentions were. So let us know. Give us an update on that thread, or just shoot us an email, and we'd love to hear how your 2023 Reading Intentions have come to fruition or been revised or dropped altogether. Right. That's an option too. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of decided to use the term intentions instead of goals because it felt less pressury. Goals are supposed to be things that are measurable, deadline oriented. And that's a different vibe completely, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So we will at the beginning of 2024, probably around the second episode of 2024, we're going to reset our intentions for the year. So we will start a new thread for 2024, but we would love for you to pipe in on the 2023 thread and let us know where you stand. So Emily, what are you currently reading? Well, speaking of our 2023 reading intentions, which one of mine was to read more Maggie O'Farrell, I'm currently reading The Hand That First Held Mine, which is one of her novels. This book is told from the point of view of two main characters. One is Lexi, who's in 1950s London, And she's living in the English countryside with her big family. She's the eldest, and she's ready to flee the nest and does. She heads to London. And then the other character is in present-day London. She's living through the haze of having just given birth. She had a C-section. She hemorrhaged. She lost a lot of blood. So the writing is very hazy. She's dizzy. She's got a screaming baby. She doesn't really know what's going on. And that's as far as I've gotten. I'm not quite sure how these two storylines have to do with each other, but I'm pretty sure they'll have something to do with each other at some point. I just love Maggie O'Farrell's writing. And again, this is called The Hand That First Held Mine. Well, I'm reading The Darcy Myth, Jane Austen, Literary Heartthrobs, and the Monsters They Taught Us to Love. This is by Rachel Fetter, who's a professor of English. She is talking about... Darcy, one of the most famous love interests in literature, he is from Pride and Prejudice, and how women have been trained to think they can change men who are not into them, (laughs) to bring in another title. 
and just how harmful that is for women. She has a great sense of humor. I'm not that far into it. I really didn't have much time to read this weekend. I had visions of myself sitting down and doing nothing but reading this book. It's pretty thin. You can tell that she's an academic because she knows a lot of what she's talking about, but she also has a great sense of humor about the topic. I love some of the titles of chapters. Like one of them is Candy Coated Gothic or Why Jane Austen Was Actually Dark as Hell. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, and I checked this out at the library and I think I'm actually going to buy my own copy because it's one I want to refer back to and underline and just go to town on it. So again, that's The Darcy Myth by Rachel Fetter. I'm just back from visiting my daughter, Rachel, in Michigan. And on the flight home yesterday, I started The Kamagawa Food Detectives by Hisashi Kashiwai. And this is translated by Jesse Kirkwood. This was a huge phenomenon in Japan when it first came out, I think back in 2012. It's just being released here stateside on February 13th, 2024. Thank you to Putnam for our advanced reader copy. This takes place in Kyoto, Japan. It's a father and daughter duo who are running the Kamagawa Diner, which is off a quiet street in Kyoto that's very difficult to find cooking incredible food. Oh my gosh, Chris, on the plane yesterday, I was like, I'm hungry. (laughs) The food writing is great. Diners come because they're looking to have a food item from their past recreated. Mm. So the daughter and the father do some detective work to try to recreate this dish. So the diner comes back a couple weeks later, and they present them with this item that they've cooked for them, that often part of the recreation of it has to do with recreating the memory itself. Very sweet book. It's very short. I am almost done with it, just having started it on the plane yesterday. Again, it's called The Kamagawa Food Detectives, Hisashi Kashiwai, out February 13th. Chris, what did you just read? I finished The Helsinki Affair, by Anna Petoniak. And this is my first book of the month book that I received. They gave us a three-month subscription apiece, and I was excited to get it in the mail. That blue box came. I chose this one because it's a spy thriller kind of novel, and I really like to read those in the fall, especially like around the holidays when things start getting busy. And I, I don't know, I just like to, to whip through a book, and thrillers are usually big page turners. This is about a young CIA agent named Amanda Cole. I mean, she's in her late 30s, which, you know, I consider young these days. I know (laughs) everything is relative when it comes to age. And her dad had been a CIA agent. He had been undercover in his younger years. But now for the last couple decades, he's been working at headquarters as kind of like just a, a PR type person. Like, you kind of wonder about that, like other people have been promoted faster above him. So there's something going on with him. And she's the head of their post in Rome, when a Russian citizen comes to the guard gate and says, I need to talk to somebody, I have information about a United States senator who's going to be visiting, I think the Middle East it was. And at first, nobody really wants to talk with him. They think he's just kind of fluky people coming and talking about all sorts of conspiracy things. 
But Amanda is kind of bored. She doesn't like the paperwork. That's part of her job. So it sends them in. And she has that instinct of an agent who can really kind of sense like, okay, there's something real here. The action takes off pretty quickly. I really enjoyed the character of Amanda. The storyline bounces back to her current case that she's working that stems from this Russian citizen. And then you get the backstory of her father in Helsinki when she was just a little baby and what happened. It's just one of those thrillers where like, you know that something's going to be happening, maybe connections made, but you don't really know how it's going to happen. There's some other really great characters. There's an older woman analyst who comes in and analysts, they're, they're agents who are doing the archival research. They're looking at documents and data. They're not the ones in the field necessarily, unless they're interrogating somebody. And so she's this older woman who's legendary in the CIA, who works with Amanda. Really fun story. There's a lot of latest technology things happening. And so I guess the heart of the book is how the Russians are manipulating financial stock algorithms and how they're doing it and why this is a problem and kind of ties everything together. So, you know, that's a real thing, manipulating algorithms. And if you can do that with stocks, people can become billionaires or lose everything overnight, basically. What I liked is that she turns the tables on gender stereotypes and discrimination. There used to be a thing where women weren't thought to be good agents because they were too emotional and too vulnerable to manipulation and things like that. Petoniak really flips that. You see how a male agent can be vulnerable and a straight white male agent can be vulnerable as well. So I appreciated that. She also addresses issues of racism, paternalism, not in heavy detail, but enough that you feel like it's very contemporary. So there's one character, Navarro is her last name. So her parents were immigrants. She's a brown person. She's interviewing with an older white male senator, right? And she says, a certain kind of person loved Jenny's story, loved what it represented. The person was always older, often male, always white. She found this increasingly irritating. Not bothering to conceal her impatience, she said, you've never hired someone like me. And then goes off from there. So I enjoyed it. The Helsinki Affair, Anna Petoniak. It's available now. I will read more from this author. And it's her debut, I believe. I finished The Queen of Dirt Island by Donnell Ryan. The only other book I've read by Donnell Ryan is The Spinning Heart, which I read because it takes place in Ireland. And I was heading to Ireland for my my first time there. And I always like to read something that takes place where I'm visiting. And I just fell in love with his writing. When I saw that Amy Bloom had reviewed The Queen of Dirt Island in the New York Times, I knew I had to get on this right away. And I got a copy at the library the other day. It's a novel about four generations of women in Nina Tipperary in Ireland, Nana and her daughter-in-law Eileen in Suarce, and then Suarce's daughter Pearl. And the very opening of the book, Eileen's husband, Nana's son, Suarce's father, dies in a car accident. So that happens right away. And then we're left with these women who held each other up and lived together. The novel's written in such an interesting way. Each chapter is two pages with a one word title. So they're a cross between a vignette and almost like flash fiction. So if you like to read a book that 
moves along at a very swift pace. This is a novel for you. But yet his writing is so beautiful. I'd love to read you some passages, but I took the book back to the library because I had one of those quick reads. The themes of it are grief, which is somewhat obvious because this male character has passed away right away at the beginning of the novel, and loneliness and death, and also suicide because there is a story arc about suicide. But it's also about forgiveness and how to be part of a family that's changed very quickly because of a death. And then we also have a theme of a young woman who gets pregnant, and there's no father or parent, and how all the other women in her life really hold her up, which isn't always what happens in situations like that. The writing just took my breath away. I was reading passages out loud. I would have underlined them, Chris, if I'd owned the book, but it was a (laughs) library book. What is funny is someone had written in this book. I had to take a picture and text Chris because the name Suarce is hard to pronounce. I'm probably not even pronouncing it correctly. It's spelled S-A-O-I-R-S-E. And someone had written in the book the first time it appeared in the novel, this is how you pronounce it. Right. In, in pen. In, in, yeah, in pen. Like, <laughs> dude, use a sticky note. Exactly. <laughs> FYI, don't write in library books. And also, like, some of us know how that name's pronounced, but whatever. You know, they were trying to do a public service. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really funny. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I highly, highly recommend this novel. I think it's probably going to hit my top 10. Again, that's called The Queen of Dirt Island by Donnell Ryan. Well, I read another thriller, this one from an older, beloved author who a lot of people enjoy, Patricia Cornwell, her latest, Unnatural Death. And I read it on my e-reader. Such a good book. Kay Scarpetta is her main character. For those of you who know her series, Kay started in Virginia and then throughout the years of the series has been in different locations, but she's back in Virginia now. And her niece, Lucy, who she raised as her own daughter, is an adult now. She's really into the high tech, anything from robots to helicopters to now AI and computers. She's a real whiz at those things. She's now working for the Secret Service. She's always worked for some kind of agency. So it starts with these two people who are extremely wealthy, like eccentric billionaires, who have been camping out in the woods near their home, hiding, and trying to pretend they're different places when they're not. You don't really know what's going on, but they are brutally murdered by something you don't know what it is. And they had all these trail camps set up. You hear things, but you don't see it. And it's on land that in the 19th century had been mining country. So there's all these old mines that nobody mapped them back then. When I lived in Nevada, I remember there were cases where one time in a high school parking lot, an old mine shaft just opened up and the car got sucked down into it. So it's like really dangerous areas. So a lot of the times they're not very inhabited. So the investigation is all about they've monitored these two people. It was a husband and wife. They were just big jerks too, (laughs) supplying right-wing extremists with camping gear and tools and things. So it's Kay Scarpet at her best. In her head a lot, worrying and wondering about things. I don't want to give any spoilers about it because there's some interesting surprises that come up. But the whole cast of characters are there. Lucy's very present. Marino, who's been Kay Scarpetta's 
right-hand man and pain in the ass since day one of the series. Her husband, Benton, is around a little bit. As always, her books are fast reads for me, and they always make me want Italian food because she cooks Italian. In this book, it was actually Kay Scarpetta's sister, Dorothy, who did some cooking pizza. So I had to have pizza that oh, night. Oh, no. yeah. You know? Yeah. So now you're going to have um, to have pizza tonight because whenever we say the word pizza, I know. We know you what happens. Say the word, it has to happen. So, yeah, I enjoyed it very much. I didn't read thrillers. She was one of the first thriller slash mystery writers that I started reading after Nevada Bar. I thought Nevada Bar was just a one off kind of author for me as far as like thrillers and mysteries went. But I had a friend back in the 90s who loved Patricia Cornwell. So I thought, I'll give him a try. And I just got hooked. Yeah. So her latest is out now, Unnatural Death. Now, I get her confused with the author that did A is for Alibi. Oh, that's Sue Grafton. Sue Grafton. Okay. Well, I also read a thriller, which is unlike me, but I've seen this cover everywhere. And I was at a little free library a couple weeks ago, and there was this novel called The Maid by Nita Prose. It has a great cover with a keyhole, and then you see a maid gliding past in the keyhole. It turns out this is going to be a series, the Molly Maid series. And the second book, The Mystery Guest, just came out on November 28th and has a very similar cover in royal blue. The maid is in red, a really bright red that's hard to miss. So Molly, the maid, works at the Grand Regency Hotel which is like a fancy pants hotel. And she's very devoted to her job. She is someone that has trouble reading social cues and likes order. Her parents both disappeared when she was younger and her beloved gran raised her, but has recently passed away. So Molly's trying to keep order in her life. That was very much ordered by her relationship with gran. They lived together in apartment. They had a cleaning regiment every day of the week. And now Molly's on her own and she's at work and goes to clean one of the rooms. And it's one of those hotels that has repeat guests or guests that stay long term. So she has regulars that she cleans for. One of them is Mr. Black and his second wife, Giselle. And she goes to enter the room and finds Mr. Black dead in his bed. As you might imagine, there's a cast of characters that works in this hotel, and they become part of the storyline, and she becomes a suspect in the murder. Mm. It's a really great book. It was a page turner. It was the perfect book for me as I was flying to Michigan and then staying in a hotel. (laughs) It makes you look at employees in the hotel very differently. I've always had the utmost respect. I've worked in hotels myself in the past and how hard they work. And one of the points of this character is about how you are to be seen, but not seen. You talk to the guests, but you also sneak into their rooms at times when they're not there. I mean, you're not really sneaking, you're doing your job, (laughs) but you have to be sneaky in the sense that you don't want to disrupt their use of the room. And in the author's note, The author, Nita Prose, talks about the fact that she got the idea for this novel because she was traveling for work overseas, I think in London, and she came back to her room to get something and disturbed the maid. Mm. And that kind of put this little idea in her head about this whole world that these maids have when you're out and about living your life and the world of a high-level hotel. 
The other thing that she says in her author's note is that as a kid, she loved to play the game Clue. Mm. So I had a paperback copy of this book, and in the back was a set of what would look like Clue cards with each of the characters from the hotel, (laughs) which was really fun. Yeah, so it was the perfect read for me. I highly recommend it if you like a murder mystery that involves zero blood and guts and a really lovely cast of characters and a character that's different and has a ton of heart. Again, it's called The Maid by Nita Prose. And it's Molly the Maid number one. Nice. Yeah, you don't want to read Patricia Cornwell if you don't like blood and guts, (laughs) because you know, she does autopsies and yeah, describes. Yeah, yeah, the difference between me and Chris, I occasionally read a true crime and can do some blood and guts for some reason, which is weird. Like Mm -hmm. I prefer it to be real instead of fiction. Oh, interesting. See, I, I can't handle true crime. I've tried to read them. Like I even when I worked as a bookseller, I didn't like to even shelve books in that <laughs> section. It wigged me out so much. Yeah, I don't yeah. know why it doesn't make sense. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well. So we both finished the bookminder by Pip Williams. This is the last book in our year of reading books about books. I can't believe it. It went by so fast. I know. So we read Parnassus on Wheels was our first book. The Reading List. And then... The Scarlet Letter and Hester and The Invisible Hour. Yes. That was a three-for-one kind of deal for our Scarlet Summer. And then Pip Williams, her new book, The Bookbinder. A lot of our listeners really loved her first book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, which is about the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. The bookbinder was highly anticipated because of that love of her first novel. And it's set in the same world, a little bit different neighborhood, but the same world of Oxford in the 19-teens, just around World War I. And it's about two sisters primarily, Peggy and Maud. They never knew their dad, and their mom died when they were pretty young. They live on a houseboat, one of the narrow boats, and they work in the book bindery. They work as women who fold the pages of books as those sheets are being printed. Yeah. Yeah. And they're lovely sisters. Peggy has a desire to read and continue her education. And Maud is pretty satisfied to be working in the bindery. We're not sure if she's on the spectrum. That's slightly unclear. Some people call her slow. I wouldn't call her slow. Right. As one of our listeners pointed out in the Zoom discussion, Maud's mother considered her very smart. And I think the book shows that she is very smart. She just doesn't react in the customary ways that people expect other people to react in conversation. And she's not great at managing things. Like she cooks a fried egg one evening and and burns the pan, which on a houseboat that's full of books could have been a real tragedy. Right. So Peg feels really responsible for Maud. Maud is enjoying her life. The thing too, is that Peg wants to pursue her education, but it's at a time and place when classism is really extreme. And there are no opportunities for women of a lower class to attend college. And even the women who are from wealthier families may attend the college at Oxford for women, 
but they don't even get access really to the main libraries and things like that. There's still that gender discrimination. Right. Yeah. We should say coming up at the end of this episode, we have a conversation with Pip Williams. That's really interesting. We are so happy to share that with you. And she talks a lot about these things. Yes. Yeah. So we don't want to repeat a lot of things. I have tons of tabs in my copy of the book. I mean, they're just a lot of really good lines that I like. And I love the story. I really enjoyed the characters. All of them, I thought, were really well drawn. And they made me feel for them, especially some of the characters that were in the Dictionary of Lost Words who are in this book. My heart was tugged a lot. But one funny scene I liked is when Peg meets Gwen. Gwen is a wealthy woman And as we've said, Peg is from a lower class, so the two don't usually mix. But World War I has caused a lot of upheaval, and people who didn't used to mix are mixing now. So Peg goes with Gwen to this kind of like a meeting, and they're standing there at this event, and Gwen sees somebody that she has to go and talk to, and she says, you know, are you going to be okay? And she's like, Peg says, then she left me standing there, looking the part in my Sunday skirt and ladies' tie, but feeling like bad poetry and leather binding. And I just love that, (laughs) feeling like bad poetry and leather binding. I mean, what a great way of describing having like imposter syndrome. In a bookish way. In a bookish way, in that bookish world where it's like, you know, leather binding is top of the line, and then you put crappy poetry in it. Right. Yeah, love that. (laughs) And in our Zoom conversation, you know, people were reading passages from the novel as well. I mean, it's just a beautifully written book. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed the story arc of the two sisters. Mm -hmm. They're twin sisters and how the ties that bind and how we make decisions about our lives based on that. Right. And all the assumptions that we have, we get them in childhood, maybe, and we think that this is the way it is when maybe you're just making an excuse. Right. Maybe that is how it used to be. It's not that way anymore. And you're holding yourself back because of somebody else that just really resonates. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. The fact also that World War One is a character in the novel, but it's not a war novel. I really appreciate it as well. I mean, it's definitely impacting everyone's lives. But there's no scenes from the trenches or anything like that. No, there's not which you know, in some ways, it's like, maybe it's time to redefine the war novel. Mm. I mean, because this is more of a war novel, like this is showing how everyone in society is impacted by the war. It's just in the military, quite often 80% of the people are support, 20% are in combat. And that is absolutely not to take anything away from people who've experienced combat. But even in this book, one of the characters is a combat nurse. People didn't used to say combat nurse. They were just a nurse. These are women who are in the thick of it quite often. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're in some hospital 200 miles away. Right. So I really appreciate looking at the bigger impact of war. Yeah. The bookbinder, Pip Williams, will be talking about it more at the end of this episode with Pip. This episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. 
a book subscription service that offers a curated selection of titles to choose from. The books are available in hardcover, and for you audiobook listeners, they have recently introduced a selection of audiobooks, so you can choose a hardcover or an audiobook each month. Well, my December pick just arrived. I'm super excited. It is No One Can Know, a novel by Kate Alice Marshall. And this is one of those book of the month perks where the book is being released early to members. The actual release date is in later January 2024. So I chose this one. It's a bit of a thriller, possibly a little horror-ish, not exactly sure. But 14 years ago, parents were murdered and the three young daughters were there and they've never talked about it. And now they're grown up and one of the sisters needs to move back into the parents' home which has been standing there empty all those years. So I look forward to digging into this. And a fun little thing, Book of the Month included a sheet of stickers, Seasons Readings. And they're just adorable. One is a foxy-looking creature reading a book in a sleigh, and it says, these books slay. You know, just kind of fun stuff. So how about you? Well, one of the things about being middle-aged is sometimes you order things and you don't remember what they are. The last book I chose was an audiobook, so I didn't have the pleasure of their signature blue box arriving on my doorstep. But this month I did, and the box arrived, and I don't know what's inside, so I'm going to unbox it now. Oh, I got the cute stickers also. My book is called A Winter in New York by Josie Silver. It's got a really fun cover with two people eating ice cream cones in their winter gear in front of what looks like the Brooklyn Bridge. The blurb says a young chef stumbles upon a secret family recipe that might lead her to the love and life she's been looking for. Oh, now I know why I chose this book. (laughs) A Winter in New York, Josie Silver. If you'd like to try a subscription, head to bookofthemonth.com to pick a book. For a limited time, you can get the first book for just $5 with code for you, F-O-R-Y-O-U. Check the show notes for links. And for you last minute gift buyers, reminder that they also have a gift option and you can choose email delivery and a printable card. So that might be a great gift for the book lovers in your life. Biblio Adventures. We are one year older. We had our seventh anniversary between last episode and this, and we went on a joint jaunt to celebrate. We did. Well, it started with food. (laughs) Because we're us. (laughs) Yes. And we went to a lovely diner. Is it Chez? Chez Is that how they say it in France? I don't know. I don't know. Or Chez? I don't speak French, unfortunately. (laughs) And it's always intimidated me, that language, for some reason. I think it's Chez Ben Diner, but I'm no expert. Shea Ben Diner. Okay. And we had poutine. We did. Which we also learned is not the correct pronunciation. Putin? I'm not sure. The server told us that it's called Putin. Yeah. Which we didn't know. I don't know. doesn't seem right to me as someone who did study French. And we did look it up and she was right. I mean, I don't know why we should think she wasn't right. (laughs) She serves it all day. I mean, poutine just sounds more French to me. But it was delicious, and it was my first real poutine or puttin'. You know, it's French fries with gravy and cheese curds. Yeah, delicious. Delish. I oh got my the gosh. classic version, which is what Chris just described. Chris got one that also had kielbasa. Yeah, I got the polka poutine. <laughs> 
which had kibasa and onions in it. Do you ever just go to a restaurant and you want to order something because you want to say the name out loud? That happens to me all the time. And so I was glad that Chris ordered the polka poutine or Putin. Polka <laughs> Putin. I mean, polka poutine sounds better, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So delish. And then after that, we went to Glastonbury, where we explored the new Riverbend books. They moved just down the street from their first location. So it was really wonderful to see their new digs. Yeah, they're in an old historical building closer to the center of town. And the Chamber of Commerce is upstairs. So it's a really nice mixed use of the building. Small shop, incredibly well curated. Yes, fantastic. I did the bulk of my book holiday purchasing there. So it's an old tavern that it's in. And they have a little section with some artifacts that were dug up when they were doing some archaeology on the property. One of the things was a sugar bowl that was ginormous. Yeah, It was like bigger than my head. I think of sugar bowls as being small things. And when you think of sugar being even more expensive back then, it was surprising to see such a large sugar bowl. Yeah, my theory is that it was the one that the kitchen used for baking, but I don't know. Yeah, that was fun. And then across the street is the Wells Turner Memorial Library, which is a classic New England library in that there's an older part of the building and they've done a big renovation and there's a modern section on the back, which we've never had a chance to walk through. Yeah, that was really great to finally get inside. I think every time we've been in the area, they were closed while it was also the pandemic for a while. But it's this beautiful white facade facing the street that has Dutch influences. And then there's this fantastic ancient beech tree out front that is one of my favorite trees in connecticut yeah yeah it is gorgeous that's been really well taken care of they have wires holding some of the branches up and it is a captivating tree really Mm -hmm. it's worth the visit just to see that but we did go inside there's a lot of natural sunlight there's beautiful modern furniture we both were ooing and aahing at nooks that we want to go back and work in So I'm so glad we got to see it. Lots of great workspace in there. And then when I was in Michigan, I got a chance to go back to Sutton's Bay and go to Bay Books, which is a sweet bookstore right on the main drag in Sutton's Bay, which is right on Lake Michigan. For those of you who might remember in the summer, I went to the public library there and the librarian's office has the best view in the world. And I told her that. But anyway, when I was there last time, I saw that they had all of these books by an author named Viola Shipman. And I didn't really know anything about her. And I had regretted not getting one of the novels. And so I went back specifically to do that. And Viola Shipman is a pen name for Wade Rouse. That name is his grandmother's name, who was someone very influential to his writing and is why he chose to write under that pen name. So I had a hard time choosing which book, but I ended up choosing one called The Recipe Box. It's a novel where the story takes place in northern Michigan, and the protagonist has returned from a period of her life living in New York City as a sous chef, and it didn't go well. Her career ended poorly there. So she's back home on the family apple orchard trying to get her life back in order. It has recipes. (laughs) I can't wait to read it. Well, I attended the event that I mentioned in the last episode, a lecture by Robert Darton at the Boston Athenaeum. Wonderful lecture. It was so good. He's talking about his new book, The Revolutionary Temper, Paris, 1748 to 1789. 
He's talking about the time period leading up to the revolution. One of the things he wanted to uncover was how did most of the people back then get their information? And I should just backtrack and say he is a big name in book history. So he has had some very influential works that changed the way people understand book history. And so what he wanted to do was ask the question, how did illiterate people get the news back then? Because all of the accounts we have of the Revolutionary War, it's all top down. It's all the upper classes who wrote about things and analyzed things. Some of the things he talked about was that there in Paris, the first daily newspaper didn't come out until 1777. And it was really heavily censored. One of the main ways that people got their information back then was gathering around the tree of Krakow, which was this big old chestnut tree, and they would come there to share news. So people would gather to share news, gossip that they've heard, and ambassadors would send people to get the news, to take back to the powers that be. And then people who were there getting the news would go back to cafes, coffee shops, and salons and share the information. And some of the people would write down what they heard and leave the sheets there at the cafe or wherever they were. So then people could get the news that way if they read or somebody could read it to them. The police also hung out and they would arrest people who were saying things that the king or the church didn't like. There's estimated something like 3,000 police spies in Paris at this time. You know, but that's like if people don't read, they're talking. So you got to have a lot of ears on the ground, right? If you want to police things. And then there was a woman named Madame de Berry, I believe her name was. And she sent out a reporter, and he says reporter in quotation marks, to collect the information and then come back and write it down. And he would write it into two registers one that was more gossipy, and then the second was stuff that seemed more true. And then a servant would write a summary of these (laughs) and print sheets. And those sheets would get passed around to people, people who read, obviously, but then again, who could read it to other people. So I just thought that was fascinating to look, you know, as he says, you want to study not just events that happen, but attitudes towards them at the time, the perceptions of all people more than just what was written by upper classes. Because really, I mean, the French Revolution was so huge. Why, since most people were illiterate back then, why did so many people get behind it? And it's like, well, there was this huge information network that is now coming more to light. And I really find that to be so fascinating. It made me think about something we talked about with Pip Williams in the interview, talking about how the upper classes in England were surprised at how many of the lower class men joined and went to fight the war. And the upper class people thought, well, they don't really hate us. Look, they're going to fight for the country. And that to me, like, I've been thinking so much about that in relation to Darton's conversation as well, because that kind of attitude is almost saying, we're the real true British people. We are English, the upper classes. And the lower classes, they didn't even really consider them to be English. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just fascinating stuff. And so Darton's point, he always does a really good job of relating his research to current times. And so now we talk so much about our current day being such an information society. And he's like, every culture 
in time has had their own information highway. So he's really curious about how misinformation then and now is used to corrode the powers that be. And he said today, the legitimacy of our republic is being challenged just as much as the French monarchy was back then. So his book, The Revolutionary Temper, it's 576 pages. I don't know if I'm going to get it or not. Um, I haven't looked at it yet because I'm curious if a lot of those are notes. Right, 200 pages of notes I or know, something. right? Yeah. So I'm really curious about it. And I'm really happy that the Boston Athenaeum did a streaming of that event. It was a paid event for $5 to stream it. So I don't think it's going to be available but should it become available, we'll share the link. Nice. Yeah. So the other event that I attended was Alan B. Farmer's lecture at the Harry Ransom Center, which is down in Texas. The title of his talk was Lost Books, The Dark Matter of the Early Modern English Book Trade. Now, this event is online. You could watch it on YouTube, and we'll put the link in the show notes. He talks about a lot of numbers. We're talking about the early modern period, so like the Renaissance when book printing was just really taking off and very much, at least in England, controlled by the crown. But some of the takeaways, I mean, the big takeaway is that prose was much more popular in the early modern period than we've thought, because what survived are a lot of the plays. So his theory based a lot on these hard numbers that he has is that prose fiction was super popular, and a lot of it doesn't survive because it was read to death. You think about like our paperbacks now that might survive seven readings if somebody's really careful before it starts falling apart, that a lot of these things just fell apart. So that kind of research could really change scholarship and how you study the Renaissance time period, at least in literary studies. Mm. We'll put the link in the show notes to that talk. Excellent. Do you have any upcoming jaunts? I do. I do. I'm super excited. Today is my last day of work for the semester. So I feel like a kid heading into the holiday break or summer or something like that. So next week, I plan on going into Manhattan to visit the Grolier Club to see their new exhibit, The Best Red Army in the World. This is an exhibit that started in September, and it ends December 30th. They also have a really nice online version of this exhibit. So again, we'll put a link to the show notes in that. This exhibit is really focused on World War II. So a lot of the Armed Forces editions, but it encompasses more than that. So I can't wait to see that. That one is in their main exhibit space. And then upstairs, as Emily and I learned when we were there earlier this year, they always have an exhibit of a current member's collection. The one that they have now is by a member named Jeffrey Johnson. The exhibit is Who Done It? Key Books and Detective Fiction. Mm. Yeah, so I look forward to checking both of those out. And I'm going to then go and do some research at the New York Society Library. Right so super excited about that. I can't wait to just go and have some fun. Yes, you've earned it. <laughs> I have just a couple virtual watchings that I'm hoping to do. Hank Philippi Ryan does Tuesday Crime Hour on A Mighty Blaze that they stream on Facebook and I think on YouTube. And maybe on Twitter, I'm not sure. I'll put links in the show notes. And she just had on Nita Prose talking about the second Molly made 
novel. Nice. So I'm really wanting to watch that. And then on YouTube, there is a launch of Donnell Ryan's The Queen of Dirt Island that was done via the Glucksman Ireland House at New York University. And so I'm going to watch that because I've never seen him. He is an Irish writer. I don't know if he book tours. But this was a virtual event that he did to launch it uh, stateside anyway. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. That's on YouTube. What about upcoming reads? I have one book on my list called Good Taste by Carolyn Scott. This is a novel in search of great food. And it's about a novelist who thinks her career is about to end. She's in England in 1932 during the Great Depression. And she's called into her publishing house. And instead, they give her a task to go around and write about the history of food in England, and how the English like to eat. It seems like a really fun novel and very British. So I'm looking forward to hearing about like, what was the food in the bookbinder toads and holes or oh yeah, toad in the hole, toad in the like hole. That, yeah. yeah, I'm sure there is, there's going to be some toad in the hole. So I'll report back. <laughs> What about you? Well, I picked up from the library a copy of a book that I heard about on one of my favorite podcasts called Drafting the Past. She interviews historians about their writing process. And the book that I have in my hands is by Catherine McNoor, Mischievous Creatures, The Forgotten Sisters Who Transformed Early American Science. This is about Margareta Hare Morris and her sister Elizabeth Carrington Morris, who were gardeners, entomologists, and were so instrumental in discovering things and supplying specimens to other experts. I enjoyed the interview very much with the author. And then I was very pleased when I picked it up at the library to find that the top blurb on the back of the book is by Janice Nomura, who was one of our former guests and one of our reads that we did, one of our joint reads, author of The Doctor's Blackwell. And her blurb is, this is it, Catherine McNur's meticulous research and sensitive storytelling are exactly what the Morris sisters deserve. She brings their painstaking and painfully underestimated work on ferns and flies, seaweeds and cicadas to life, and also offers an illuminating case study of the omissions, misattributions, and erasures that have kept female scientists like them hidden for centuries. Mm, great blurb. Isn't it? And I should add, too, that the author, Catherine McNoor, was working on a different project when she stumbled across letters from one of the sisters to a leading scientist and was like, who is this person? Wow. So it led her down this whole other archival rabbit hole that now is this fantastic book that is really bringing these two sisters and their achievements back into the historical record. It's like Pip finding a little tidbit that made her want to write the book Binder, you know, when mm -hmm. she was in the archives researching for the Dictionary of Lost Words. And it makes me think of the work of nonfiction, The Dark Queens. Right. Same thing. She was researching something else. So. Exactly, right? And the yeah. thing with Pip Williams, you know, writing fiction... You know, she, Pip Williams had to imagine what these women's lives could have been because there's no archival record really yeah. on them. Yeah. Which is, of course, I think a tragedy, but history is history. Right. That's right. So we have some announcements. 
Yeah, lots of fun stuff. Yeah. The first one is we are very excited to report that we are going to be recording with our friend Russell over at Ink and Paper blog to do our annual top 10 of 2023 this year. And that episode will drop. That's episode 198. And it will drop on Tuesday, January 2nd. So just after the first of the year. Yeah. And Russell is a booktuber. Check out his channel if you're not aware of his work. People really enjoy our top 10s. We each share theoretically 10 books. It usually <laughs> it usually ends up being more. So that would be 30 books. I think it usually ends up being more like 90 books. Um, so looking forward to that because um, top 10s, like here we are. Oh, yes, I know. It's, I mean, we still have a couple weeks to read, but we will get there. And then we also will be querying you, the listeners, about your top 10 books again this year. We created last year a Google form for you to submit your top 10s to us. Some of you did it by email too. That's fine. We will put that in the end of the year newsletter. So those of you who are newsletter subscribers, that newsletter will be coming out at the end of December and we'll have a link to the form we will also put that in the show notes for next episode if you do not receive the newsletter. Yeah, and the the good thing about if you use that Google form, it automatically populates it into a spreadsheet. That's always just a fun thing to see what everybody's top 10s are. And reminder, it doesn't have to be a book that came out in 2023. A lot of our top 10s are older books, sometimes classics, and sometimes maybe just a couple years old, but don't feel like you have to restrict yourself to books published in 2023, unless that's your kink. Right. And we fully support kinks here at the Book Cougars. Yes, we do. <laughs> so now we have a big drum roll because next up we are announcing our 2024 read-along theme. And we've been dropping some Easter eggs for those of you who listen to every episode. Yes, we, <laughs> we have. We should have done a thing like query people if they had guesses. Oh. <laughs> So our theme for 2024 read-alongs is romance. romance. Yes, you've heard it, romance. We are going to read romance novels, romance stories, romance scholarship. I have a feeling the crystal ball in my head that can look at the future is imagining some listeners screaming with delight at this announcement and others thinking, WTF, mm -hmm. like really, book cougars, romance? Because I know a lot of people have, you know, they don't appreciate romance or they've never tried romance because there are a lot of stereotypes about romance. And one of the things that we're turned on about with romance is how much we've learned this year, in part because we attended that Yale Romance Conference earlier this year. I just love the way that you use the word turned on while you're describing <laughs> romance. We're going to have a lot of fun this year, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of what I didn't know, I think Chris knew this because of her background working in a bookstore and managing a bookstore. The romance genre keeps the entire industry alive. Without it, we wouldn't be able to read anything else. Exactly. And this is not a new statistic. Um, I, when I first started working in bookstores in like 2000, 2001, I guess it was, already, you know, the romance genre was what was paying everyone's salary. And we'd always have big conversations with new employees about that if they should scoff at not just romance, but genre in general, because there are a lot of snobs out there when it comes to books and aka former snob here. <laughs> um, so, 
We're going to learn a lot about romance. Yes, we are. We're not sure. We think we're just going to pick four official read-alongs. We're definitely going to take some Biblio adventures. There are some romance-only bookstores opening up all over the country. We're excited to go visit some of them. And we're also going to read about the romance genre. And I think we should start by putting in the show notes for this episode, an article that recently came out in the New York Times about one of the most, if not the most, prolific romance authors out there. Nora Roberts. Yes. A.K.A. J.D. Robb. She writes under two names. One of them is a pen name. And she's written something like 250 novels. Yeah. And she is not given the due respect that she deserves. And this article in the New York Times was about that. So I know that there's a way that I can create a link that is outside of the paywall for New York Times. So I will do that and put it in the show notes. And this will give all of you insight into the walls that romance authors have to bang their heads up against to get respect in the industry. Right. Or just, you know, how they're combating a lot of stereotypes. I mean, we do live in a patriarchal culture that tends to attack things that women like. Most romances are written by women for women. So we're going to be looking at it through a feminist angle. There is also a very interesting thread that was brought up at that conference at Yale about religion and romance, which I thought was really fascinating. And then scholarship, uh, you know, and race issues, gender Mm -hmm. issues, sexuality, ableism. I mean, we're going to be exploring a lot of different areas that the contemporary romance scene has really tackled. So romance, (laughs) we're excited to share it with you. We won't announce our first read along for first quarter of 2024 until episode 198. So stand by for that. Yeah, because we haven't decided yet. So (laughs) it's not like we're keeping anything from you. We are throwing around a lot of ideas. And I just do want to say, I am a little hesitant about romance. Because as um, a couple people have said, it's a little predictable. Is it? Are newer romances as predictable? I mean, the thing is, it's a happy ending, right? The H-E-A, happily ever after, is a requirement for a romance book. Right. Because it's not just a love story. It's a romance that's going to have a happy ending. But who knows what the happy ending is? Right. We'll find out. Yes. Yeah. So coming up next is our interview with author Pip Williams. One of the things that Pip talked about before we were officially mic'd up and recording was that the Dictionary of Lost Words has been made into a stage production and is very successfully traveling around Australia, sold out, no tickets available. And we just wanted to let people know that in the hopes that maybe it will come stateside as a stage production and or maybe one or both of the books will be made into a serialized television oh, show. That'd or be something. so fun. Yeah. yeah. All right. Come on, Reese Witherspoon. Get on it, girl. That's right. <laughs> Enjoy our conversation with Pip. We're so excited today to welcome Pip Williams. Pip is the author of The Dictionary of Lost Words, which was a New York Times bestselling novel and also a Reese's book club pick. Her new book is The Bookbinder, which was our fourth quarter read-along pick for our year of reading books about books. Welcome, Pip. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here with you both. So, Pip, we typically start by asking an author to give an elevator pitch about what their books are about, but we thought 
since you're here mostly to talk about the book binder, but we have both and several of our listeners have, or I should say many of our <laughs> listeners have read the Dictionary of Lost Words, that maybe you could take us way back to how you came to write the Dictionary of Lost Words. And at what point in that process, you got the spark to write the book binder? Sure, I'd love to tell you that, actually, because these two books, I call them companion books. So sometimes it's difficult to talk about one without talking about the other. So thank you for that question. Essentially, I read a little book which Americans would know as The Professor and the Madman by Simon Winchester many years ago. And after reading that book, which is nonfiction, it's a book about the relationship between the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary and one of the more prolific and interesting volunteers who sent in meanings of words. I read that book and suddenly had an understanding of how a dictionary was put together. And what I realised was that for a word to be in the dictionary, it had to have been written down. The problem with that <laughs> is that when the Oxford English Dictionary was first being compiled, that was the mid-19th century. It was completed in 1928 and it was using as its reference books that had been written up until the 1920s. But most of the books that had been written in the hundreds of years prior to that had been written by men. And I suddenly realised that the dictionary, this, this book that I had thought was objective, that was the arbiter of truth, I suddenly realised it was a human endeavour. And because it was a human endeavour, it had the biases of the people who had made it. And the people who had made it were men. They were educated men. And they were using as their reference books written by educated men. I realised that it had to be a gendered text. It had to be missing something that was particular to women, particular to working class people, particular to migrants and people who speak English as a second language. It had to be missing something from all of those groups of people. And that's what got me started on the Dictionary of Lost Words. I couldn't actually find very much about that. And I thought the best way for me to explore that was to put a little girl under the sorting table where all of the words of the English language are being defined and see how she responds to those words as she grows into a woman, but also how the words might respond to her what effect she might have on those words. And so that's where that novel came from. It was really me asking the question, do words mean different things to men and women? And if they do, does it matter that the dictionary was made by men? And so that's where that novel started. And I spent three years answering those questions or probably not answering, just exploring those questions. I loved writing that book so much. I was just about to hand in the manuscript and I had gone to Oxford and was sitting in the archives of Oxford University Press doing some final bits of research that would fill in a few gaps in my manuscript. One of those gaps was I wanted to know a little bit about what the women in the bindery of Oxford University Press did, who they were, what they did, what the process of binding a book was, because in the Dictionary of Lost Words there's a scene where a book is being bound in secret at the press. So I wanted to know more about these women and I asked the archivist if he would bring me everything he had about the women who worked in the bindery during World War One, And he brought me one photograph 
<laughs> of women folding the pages that have come off the press. He brought me a farewell card to Horace Hart, who was the controller of the press at that time. In other words, he was the head printer and he left in 1915. And he introduced me to a film called The Making of a Book at Oxford University Press. And that film goes for about 18 minutes. And in two small sections, there's images of women doing their job in the bindery. There's images of women folding the pages. But the one that really captured my attention was a woman who's gathering the sections of a book onto her arm. And she's working her way along a very long gathering bench, which has piles and piles of sections. And she's working so swiftly and so elegantly. And as she's doing it, I was intrigued because it was she's beautiful and she's almost dancing along this gathering bench. But I myself just wondered what book she was gathering. What was she bringing onto her arm? I was just curious about that because I knew that this film was made in the early 1920s, so just a few years after the stories that I'm telling. And I just had this question in my head, what is the book? And then I thought, I wonder if she ever stopped to read what she was gathering into her arms. And in that moment, I knew I had another story because suddenly I realised if she did stop to read and got curious about what she read and turned the page, <laughs> she would be <laughs> reprimanded because her job is to be as quick as possible, as productive as possible. This was a factory, essentially, and she'd be reprimanded. And suddenly I had a character who wanted to read and who couldn't. And that's all you need in a story, someone who can't have what they want. And, and that's <laughs> how stories start. And I knew that someone would come over to her and tell her that her job was to bind books, not read them. And then I had my next story. But I had to jot it down on a notepad and put it aside because I hadn't quite finished the dictionary. But that's where the bookbinder of Jericho comes from. Oh, sorry, the bookbinder. Oh, I, I just called it the bookbinder of Jericho. That's what it's called in other in other places, but it's just the bookbinder in the States. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that fabulous description of how that came about. And, you know, the issue of words having different meanings for men and women, and then within the classes, you make that so clear in your work that class back then in Oxford, there was no jumping over that wall in any kind of way from one class to another. I just really admire your imagination for creating these women characters and placing them in this academic intellectual endeavor of creating the Oxford English Dictionary and then having somebody with such longing to read more and to educate herself in the bindery. We had a fantastic discussion uh, just the other day with listeners on a Zoom conversation, and all of us just love both of these books so much and your imagination. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's such a lovely thing to hear because you don't know as a novelist when you're writing, as everybody would know, it's a very um, lonely pursuit and you don't know as you're writing whether the thing that interests you is going to interest anybody else. I thought the idea of water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink just constantly kept coming into my mind as I was writing this book and imagining the women who worked in the bindery who are literally surrounded by all of the ideas and knowledge of one of the most prestigious universities in the world. 
they're touching this information every day. Their eyes scan this information every day. And yet they have no access to it, no real access, no official access. And so I was so curious about writing about a woman who has this unofficial access to knowledge because she's surrounded by it and how she might use her situation in the bindery to advance herself and to pursue her dreams of becoming a scholar, essentially. I've read the novel in hardcover, but also listened to the audiobook, which is a great narrator. I highly recommend that. But I started to re-listen to the beginning again, the part where Peggy, you know, there's little errors that are made that allow her to take these books home. And I was like, oh, what a great plot device, Pip. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, it's mirrored, you know, in the Dictionary of Lost Words, we have a, a sort of young woman who essentially rescues lost words or words that are discarded by the lexicographers who are putting the dictionary together. In the bookbinder, I have a woman who takes home, again, the discarded proofs, papers that have been torn in the folding process, anything that is just not up to standard in order to be sold. Occasionally, she will make that happen. (laughs) If there's something in particular she wants to bring home, she'll make sure that it is somehow damaged so that she can take it home. In a way, I think that women throughout history have had to find unofficial ways to access the things that they need because they weren't given them officially. Women weren't given access to a vote. In the UK, the characters that I'm writing about wouldn't have had access to Parliament, to casting a vote, because in the UK... Women didn't get the vote until, well, some women got the vote in 1918 towards the end of the war, but all women didn't get the vote until 1928. It was very different in Australia. Where I live in South Australia, women had the vote in 1894, so much, much earlier. But women in Britain weren't given access to having a voice a representation in Parliament. They also didn't have full representation in the dictionary and they certainly weren't represented in the kind of knowledge-making institutions of that country. And so they take what they need in roundabout ways. That was kind of fun to do for my character, Peggy. Yeah. Well, and there's also a lot of libraries in Oxford And they don't necessarily have access to those libraries. There's a public library, Sebastian, I believe, has a library card too, but... Yes, the public library, which was what we would call a council library or a county library, anyone could have access to that. But that didn't have the books that someone who wants to, say, study classics needed to study classics. The other libraries that were associated with the university were restricted to women. So even women who went to Somerville College, which is the women's college directly across the road from Oxford University Press. So the road that the press is on is called Walton Street. And Walton Street actually divides Oxford from the town of Jericho. And Jericho is a working class neighbourhood of Oxford. And It's got this one beautiful, magnificent building in it, which is Oxford University Press, and that press is owned by the university. But across the road from the press is Oxford, the city of Oxford, and 
the College of Somerville. And Somerville Ladies College is one of the first women's colleges at Oxford. But even if you were a student at Somerville Ladies College, you still needed permission to use the Bodleian Library. You needed an introduction and permission to use that library, whereas the male scholars could just walk in and out whenever they pleased. And there were other libraries within the university as well that women couldn't even be introduced to. They simply weren't allowed to step foot in them and borrow the books. And yet these libraries contained all of the books that would help them pass their exams. There are so many structures within society that keep people out and keep other people in. And this still happens today. You know, one of the interesting things about writing historical fiction is when you realise that something that you're writing about that you think sits in the past, you think about it for just a little while and realise actually it has continued to echo through to our present. And there are still so many structural barriers to people accessing university education. It could be financial, but even if there are ways of getting bursaries or scholarships or financial help to go to university, sometimes just where you live will stop you going to university or the community that you're from doesn't encourage further education. Whatever it might be, there are still structural challenges for people who long to learn. <laughs> and so I kind of realised that Peggy's story wouldn't be so foreign to a lot of people today. Yeah, for sure. One of the big things about both books is World War One. In our conversation the other day with listeners, Nancy, I believe, was the first to really say like, it's a World War One book, but it's not like a traditional war book, in that the focus is not on the bloody battlefields. I know you wrote in your author's note that you really wanted to look at the women who were not necessarily just at home grieving and waiting, but that were working and also women who lost their homes and had to flee. So we're hoping you could talk a little bit about that time period. And it's, it seems like a good transition from the educational opportunities that were starting to kind of open up through some of those cracks mm in the foundation of society at the time that World War I was causing. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say these cracks in society. I never intended to write about World War I, but I've done it twice now. <laughs> and as you said, my focus isn't on the trenches. It's not on the usual male experience of war. I'm much more interested in, I suppose, exploring war from a perspective that we haven't seen very often. And as you said, women who just continue working, who don't really have skin in the game almost, you know, they don't have a father or a brother or a lover at the front, but they're having to get on with their lives, which so many people just did, which we still do. There's so many conflicts and things happening around the world and all of us lived through COVID. We all somehow, after the initial shock, got on with our lives. That was much harder for many people, but we still kind of got on with our lives. I was interested in sort of exploring what that looked like during World War One. I was also interested in that experience of being a refugee, of having to flee war and go to another country that is not yours, where you may be welcomed initially, but where that welcome will wear thin over time. And so in my story, Peggy and her twin sister Maud Neither of them have someone at the front who's particularly close to them, though their next door neighbour, Jack, does eventually join up. 
and they continue working. The other characters that come into the book are Belgian refugees. And I was so interested in what that might do to a place, to Oxford, for instance, when 200 refugees arrive and they shake the place up and they were welcomed with open arms. And while I was writing this book, Russia invaded Ukraine in just the same way Germany invaded Belgium, this sort of unprovoked attack. And Ukrainians fled into Europe. And so on my television screens, I can see how Ukrainians were being welcomed by people from other places with hugs, with food, with clothing, with shelter. And that's exactly what happened during World War One. Belgians were welcomed with all of those things. But that's when everyone thought the war would be over by Christmas. <laughs> and <laughs> the war dragged on for years. And so the refugee experience changed over that time. And other things changed as well. War changes. It creates those cracks you were talking about, Chris, in society. It shakes everything up and the normal order of things no longer exists and for a character like Peggy, who's desperate to study, suddenly there are opportunities that she's never had before. And one of those opportunities is this slight breaking down in the class divide. Oxford is quite interesting in that it's always had what's called town and gown, very clear divide between the people who live and work in Oxford and those who are associated with the university. So those associated with the university are referred to as gown and the others are referred to as town. And usually they don't mix very much unless it's in a master servant sort of capacity. But when the war happened, there were so many opportunities for people from different classes to interact. And so I represent that in the book when Peggy meets her friend Gwen, who is a student at Somerville College. She's incredibly privileged. She knows she's incredibly privileged and isn't ashamed of it in one <laughs> at all. But she does represent an opportunity for Peggy. Peggy suddenly has access to this place that she has always dreamed of walking into, which is Somerville College. And that creates its own kind of problems and tensions within the book. But it's an example of how things were broken down. And the other thing, in writing this book, I obviously was reading a lot of not just books, but um, other materials that were printed at Oxford University Press during this time. Because for me, I always try to make sure that the history as we know it stays the same in the novels that I write. I don't change that history. And for this story, it was the history of the books. All of the books in this book, and there are many, many that are just mentioned and others that are almost characters in themselves, all of them play themselves. They were real books printed at Oxford University Press at the time that Peggy is interacting with them. And I came across them almost serendipitously as well. They end up in the book if I think that they serve Peggy's needs in a way. If I think Peggy would have been interested in a book, then it goes in. <laughs> it went into the story. <laughs> but one of the things that was printed were these Oxford pamphlets, which were essays essentially about why Britain had gone to war and a whole lot of other things associated with the war. And one of the things I read which really stuck with me was an analysis of class in a way where someone from the educated classes was saying, I thought they hated us. And he's talking about the working class. 
and realising that they can't hate us because they are lining up in droves to fight for England. That, in Mm. fact, this idea that we had that we were so different, so separate, that they hated us, the ruling classes, is wrong because they are lining up to die for this country that only we own and can vote for (laughs) because many men Mm. didn't have the vote at that time either. And I just found that really striking. That's really great because one of the other questions we had was about, you mentioned the pamphlets and some of these books, and you also have some historical figures in the book as well, like Vera Britton and is it Iso Ray? Ray. And Mrs. Pankhurst with the WSPU. So the question we had was, what were the challenges of bringing in those historical people? And when did you realize you would be doing that? Was that pretty early on? Or did you add that in the revision process? No, right from the beginning. I think because both of these books are written about particular places or objects, so the dictionary and Oxford University Press, Somerville College, I did make the decision early on that I wanted the um, the people who were important to those places to play themselves. Um, it was also important, though, that I didn't turn them into something that they weren't. So I, I tried very hard through my research about those people to just get their natures right um, and not to put too many words in their mouth just a few so that they were present in the story. There are a few exceptions to that, though. So in the first book, Dictionary of Lost Words, I had a character called Edith Thompson who I could have given her a pseudonym because I actually do fictionalise her to some extent because she becomes Esme's godmother. Now, Esme's fictional, so any interaction they have obviously never happened. But this is a woman who contributed to every single volume of the Oxford English Dictionary, and we know so little about her, and she's given so little credit. And I didn't want to essentially excise her from my novel the way she'd been excised from history. I wanted her name to be in print. And what I decided to do with her is whenever she was in scenes with Esme, she's known as Dita, that's her nickname, that Esme gives her, and that's a fictional nickname, and it's meant to sort of identify that this part of Edith Thompson is made up. But whenever she was doing her work for the dictionary, she was referred to as Edith uh, because I, I want her to be known. That was a real dilemma, though, because I was I was fictionalising a real person. In this book, the real people include Horace Hart, who was the controller of the press, Charles Cannon, who was the secretary of the press, the Bruce sisters, who were both from Somerville College. They were all real people. I wanted them just to play themselves because it gives the story a sense of authenticity. The books as well, really important for me that all of the books, all of the materials that came out of the press were real materials. I went to great lengths, actually, and you can see these, but your your listeners can't, but these are these are all the books I, I ordered them from antique booksellers. So these these were the books that were actually printed in the war years, and I've got copies of them, so I know what they look like and feel like, and so I can read them and get a sense of what 
Peggy might have been experiencing. It was really important that those real historical figures were there, but that the story really revolves around my fictional characters. Did the quality of the bindings or the paper change during the war years? There were paper shortages during the war years, but I don't think the quality changed. So there was a shortage of paper. Um, Oh, you mentioned Vera Britton. This is what I was going to say. Vera Britton has uh, her her memoir, Testament of Youth, has been such an important text in the writing of my books that I gave her a cameo in the book binder. (laughs) (laughs) But it worked beautifully because after reading Testament of Youth, I realised that Vera Britton's father was, he owned the paper mill that made the paper that the press used. And, and she writes about visiting the press and going to Horace Hart's office and looking across the road to Somerville College. And I essentially just reimagined that scene, which I know happened. That was incredibly joyful for me. And then to just have her and my character Peggy just having this passing moment because Vera Britton was upper middle class. She was privileged, but for her, it was really hard to get to Somerville College as well. Yeah, and it was just lovely to have them interact in this fictional space, (laughs) but also to acknowledge Vera Britton's own memoir and own life, really, because it has influenced my work so much. Yeah, You mentioned the film, The Making of the Book, which listeners will put a link to that in the show notes, because it really is interesting to watch. And when you see these women in the bindery, they really do look like machines. I mean, I have to say the first time I watched the movie, I thought it was fast forwarded. Mm. Or what do you call that when it's sped up? Yeah. 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 And it's, it's not, it's just they were doing this repetitive work for hours and hours. And there's a scene in the book binder where I think it's Mrs. Stoddard, stops the women, bone folders down, stand up and do some calisthenics. And I was wondering, did that really happen? Or is that something you made up? No, that really happened. I've been so fortunate. And I'm so grateful for the support that I've had from people who work in these places. Dr. Martin Moore is the archivist at Oxford University Press, and he has met with me so many times and given me so much support over the internet. Whenever I had a question, he would answer it. We would go out to lunch and just talk about what he knew of the press because archives have so many little bits and pieces of information that are never collated into books or anything like that. But the archivist has come across all of it, the letters, the newspaper clippings, the anecdotes. And so he told me that anecdote. He told me that Mm. on the girl's side of the bindery, and that is what it was called, the girl's side, and there was a men's (laughs) side as well, that during the war years there was the woman who was the supervisor would stop the girls and the women and get them to do calisthenics every now and then just to keep them you know, (laughs) keep them moving, really, which I loved. And also the other thing that's true is that Horace Hart, one of the wonderful things he did for the press was set up the Clarendon Institute, which is known as the Stute. And that's a building just down the road. It still exists, but it's not part of the press anymore. But that building housed a library. It had a recreation room. It had a kind of tea and bar area. And it ran night classes for the people who worked at the press. And so the women could do calisthenics at the Institute, but you could also learn French and German and other languages, I think, because the press 
they printed multiple languages. And so there were many people called readers, actually, who spoke multiple languages because they had to proofread text in any language. But a lot of the working class people would also learn languages and they had access to free books there and things like that. So it was quite progressive in that way. Mm -hmm. And all of these are the little anecdotes that I get from spending time with the people who spend time in the archives. And it's such a privilege to have access to them. Yeah. In The Professor and the Madman, which I also read over the course of reading these books as well, Simon Winchester talks about being invited to Oxford University Press and was given some of the plates because they were getting rid of it all Ah. as technology improved and they obviously weren't using those systems anymore. Did you get to see any of that? I did see a lot of that stuff because there is a little museum at the press and so Martin would take me around the museum. I got to hold all the type that the compositors would use in setting the type for books and could see the presses and all of that sort of thing. Unfortunately, the things that aren't kept are the things really that the women did. And this is Mm -hmm. the same. It's not just said about history, that history really is missing so much of women's history and the history of other marginalised groups. But archives are missing a lot from women's experience. And that's what I found, you know, when I asked Martin for what he had on the women in the bindery, there were just the photograph, that bit of film, and this beautiful farewell card that had been signed. And I think it's in the back of the American version as well. Yes, um, it is. Yeah, so a photograph of all of the signatures of the women who worked in the bindery in 1915. And, you know, Peggy's and Maud's signatures would have been on there if they were real characters. And if if I can indulge you for just a moment and tell you a beautiful story about that, I mean, this is one of the most rewarding things really about having written these books is I get a lot of communication from readers. And I met a woman in a signing queue who had read the dictionary of lost words and realised that her own grandfather had been a compositor at Oxford University Press, but she didn't, her family had kind of didn't know very much about him because he actually died during the war. And so they didn't really know much of his history, but because she'd read the book and had this idea that he'd been a compositor, she actually did a little bit of family history and realised that, yes, he'd worked at Oxford University Press, she hadn't known that before, and that also his name is on the memorial, the war memorial in the press. And she told me this when she came to buy the bookbinder. I just thought that was beautiful. She showed me a picture of him in his military uniform. And she was really grateful for having been encouraged to look into his history. And I got a letter from her a couple of weeks later and It was just extraordinary because she said she loved the book. She got to the end and saw the list of signatures and her grandfather's signature was on that page and also her great-aunt. So her grandfather had worked on the men's side of the bindery. Actually, he wasn't a compositor. He'd worked on the men's side of the bindery and his sister had worked on the girl's side of the bindery. And their names are in the book. And it was wow. just, yeah, and and these are, these are things that she never knew about her family and she's just come across them in fiction. It's, right. it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> a bit of 
give an indulgence. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's always that funny thing for me when I'm reading historical fiction. I have to keep pinching myself. This is not real. This, some of it's real. Some of it's not real. Yeah. Like, where's Peggy? I want to meet her heirs. <laughs> well, it is such an interesting yeah. thing, isn't it? I mean, for me, I I love historical fiction because actually I don't read history books. And I love mm-hmm. to find out about history through story because I think we're programmed to respond to story. And so when I write my own historical fiction, I'm very careful about the history. Just because I know a lot of people, the only time they will read about how a dictionary was made is possibly in the book that I've written. The only time they might think about how a book is put together is possibly in this novel. And so I want to make sure I get that right because I don't want, yeah, I I don't want to lead anyone astray. I don't want to obviously change some of the better known facts about the war history and and the suffrage movement and Somerville College and so on. But what women have done, the work that they've done that hasn't been well recorded, this might be the only way that some people find out about that women's work. And so I want to make sure I get it right. But you can't let history dictate the story, though, in that way. And I, I can't let a character dictate the history either. So there is a, a balancing act between making sure that you get the history right, but that you're not privileging the history in the story, because it still has to be a good story. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you do such an amazing job with that. And the character of Tilda is one that a lot of people like, and she's in both books. Mm-hmm. And she brings such a contemporary perspective, our contemporary perspective, I think, to the stories So she's another character we were wondering about. When did she come in to your thinking process about the structure first of the dictionary and then the bookbinder? Yeah, she's such an interesting character for me too as a writer. With the Dictionary of Lost Words, I was really keen to have a main character who wasn't the usual female hero, heroine of a book. I wanted her, I suppose, to be a little bit more like me, a bit more ordinary, not quite so brave as she'd like to be, not quite so unconventional as she'd like to be, all those things, someone who's just a bit more ordinary because so many books have been written about women like Tilda, suffragettes or the feisty actress. There are so many books where those women are the centre of the story. I wrote a book about a more ordinary woman, Esme, But I realised that actually women like Tilda, they have such an influence on other women and I wanted her in that story. I wanted her to be an influence on Esme and I wanted to show what her influence might be. I just didn't want her to be the centre of attention as much as she wanted to be the centre of attention. (laughs) Quite vain. And and she's, you know, she does like being the centre of attention. But I really loved writing her. The other thing I loved about Tilda is that even though both of these books are kind of, you know, serious books, I think every book benefits from humour. If your book isn't a humorous book, if the story is not humorous or comedy, I think the way you inject humour into a book is through the characters. So just like in real life, you would have characters who just have a a kind of wry sense of humour and you want to see that 
in their interactions and their dialogue and their attitudes towards things. So Tilda also served that purpose is that, you know, she, she had a little bit of sass about her, which I think lightened up the story in that book. And of course, Mabel had her own role to play in that first book as well. And so Tilda played a similar role in this other book, but I felt in Bookbinder, I wanted to understand Tilda a bit better. So she was almost a stereotype on purpose, but almost a stereotype in that first book of the feisty suffragette actress, et cetera, et cetera. In this book, I wanted to make her a bit more vulnerable. I wanted to see what war would do to a woman like that. Her own opinion of herself is one of being strong and capable and unconventional and all of those things. But we know what war does to men. What does it do to the women who are actually in France at that time? And so that's why I put her in France. And also I wanted a letter writer, just like in the first book, it's the letter writer that gives a broader context because these books are written in first person. I needed a way for the reader to understand the wider context But the letters were a way to also understand Tilda better and her experience. Yeah, I really enjoyed exploring that other side of her. But hopefully she keeps her sense of feisty nature. But it is subdued somewhat because of her experience. Yeah. 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 I mean, she really saw the war from a different vantage point. You really captured that in the novel. Mm. We we have one, you know, it's actually not a question for us. This is really for our listeners. Uh, You know, it was suggested at the Zoom conversation that potentially maybe this is a trilogy and there could be another book in the works, dare we ask? (laughs) You know, my answer to this question has morphed over the last year. (laughs) Um, When I first answered this question, I would say not, well, actually I I had two ideas for my next book. And one of them was completely contemporary, much more contemporary and closer to home and not at all related to this world. The other was absolutely related to this world and you could kind of call it a, th- a third companion book because they're not sequels or prequels, but they do enrich each other, I think. And so there is there is a third book in, in my head. But since I started saying that, Another idea has kind of taken hold, which is the one I think I will write next. And let's just say, well, it's not necessarily a a natural third book. It's absolutely in the same universe. And there would be some characters that people people will recognize. I feel I can't say too much about it or I'll jinx it. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. We totally understand that. But But we can also hear, like, I hear the listeners, you know, cheering as they're taking their walks or cooking their dinner or whatever it is as they listen. It may, put it this way, it may have Tilda in it. Ooh, (laughs) exciting. (laughs) Interesting, yeah. Oh, Pip, these two novels were just such a delight. Thank you so much. Really, the the cap to our year about reading books about books. We're so glad we chose these. Thank you. Thank you. I feel so honored as well. I mean, you know, you're on the other side of the world. And like I said before, you don't know who will be interested in what you read, but you also don't expect that people living so far away will, yeah, will engage with it so beautifully. And I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. 
Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.